Our scripture reading today is taken from Romans chapter 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, starting from verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks, Yogming, for reading scripture for us. Uh, let me pray for us, and then let's come to the word together. Let's all pray. Dear Father, we thank you indeed that you are God who comforts you are God who reveals what you are to us so that we might trust in you. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words in Scripture that, was, that have just been read for us. Father, we pray that you would meet with us, help us to know that in Christ you are for us. Father, we pray that you would come in power by your Spirit and your Word, that your Word would apply strength to our hearts, Father, we pray for those among us who are struggling with despair, with distress. We pray that your word would build up and strengthen. Father, we pray for those who feel far from you. We pray that you would assure them that in Christ you have drawn near to us. And therefore, we can draw near to you. So, Father, we pray for blessing as we come to your word. We pray that you would help us. Help us, Father, to know that you are our God and we are your people in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Now, I read recently that Instagram, you know, those of you who use that social media platform, Instagram has recently started a social experiment in seven countries. Singapore isn't one of them, so, you, so it doesn't apply to Instagram users here. But in, in seven countries, uh, Instagram has stopped uh, other users from seeing the number of likes you get 
from the post that you put on. So you can, you can still see the number of likes you are getting, but other users can't see the number of likes you are getting uh, for your posts. You think, you know, why, why did Instagram do that? And why did they stop uh, putting your likes uh, visible to other users? I think it's because Instagram users in these countries were uh, expressing that they were coming under a lot of stress and pressure. You know, every time they post something, you know, it becomes a bit like a, a, a race to see how many likes you get and how many likes your friends are getting. And it becomes a, a competition for likes. So, so people were feeling stressed that they weren't getting as many likes as their friends. You know, they, they were studies, studies showed in these countries that people were struggling with declining self-confidence, declining self-esteem, because they were not getting as many likes as they would like. You know, people feel better about themselves if they have more likes than someone else. You know, I confess that after I post stuff on Facebook, I, I do check how many likes I'm getting. You know, every time you get a little notification, oh, like, yes. <laughs> right, you, you, it does something to you, right? You, you kind of feel, yes, you know, I'm, I'm getting affirmed. I'm, I'm getting approved. It, it does something to your confidence that you're getting likes. You know, why do we like likes? I think it reveals our desire for approval. And, you know, friends, we, we all share this desire, whether, whether you use social media or not, you know, whether you are actively on Facebook or Instagram or not, you know, we, we all share this desire for approval. And, and oftentimes, our confidence is connected to our approval, right? So if, if we get more approval, obviously we feel more confident. You know, I, I was talking to someone and this person said, you know, when, when, the, when their boss isn't happy with them at work, their confidence level drops. I think maybe if you've experienced this before in your workplace, you know, if your boss isn't pleased, uh, how, do you, how, how, how confident do you feel? Friends, are we able to face life with confidence? Or does our confidence come and go? You know, maybe based on how many likes we get, based on whether people approve of us or not, based on our circumstances. You know, it's easy to feel secure when things are going well. But will, but will we still be as confident when life is hard? And, and what we've seen so far in Romans 8 is that trials will come. When we look down to verse 17, Paul says, God's children will have to first suffer. You know, Paul warns us ahead of time that trials will come. We, we have to first suffer with Christ before we are glorified with Him. We'll experience groaning before glory. We'll experience the cross before the crown. And this is why we need to pay close attention to this passage before us, Romans 8, 9. It's because every one of us, at some point in our lives, will experience suffering. It's not a question of if, but when will we suffer. And these verses are so precious because these verses focus on confidence, right? Confidence in God. And, and these are verses that will serve us well, especially in times when we suffer. 
So what, what are three things that we hear from these verses? We can be confident that God is for us. We can be confident that we are right with God. And we can be confident of God's love for us. So first, we can be confident that God is for us. You know, one of the things we first noticed about this passage is that, you know, you notice the number of questions there are in this passage. You know, it starts out with a question, what should we say to these things? And then the questions keep coming. And there's seven questions in all in this passage. You know, it's a bit unusual for Paul, you know, that he uses this, so many questions in, in one small passage. You know, why does he do that? You know, why does Paul keep asking questions in this passage? I think it's because these questions, these rhetorical questions have the effect of making us think. These questions have the effect of making us respond. You know, when, when Paul asks these questions, we're meant to really think, okay, Paul, you know, what do I really think about this? You know, do I agree? Based on what you've written so far, can I, can I affirm what you're saying? So these questions draw us out. And I think as we, as, we come th- as we come to this passage, I pray that these questions would provoke us to think as well. Is it well with us? Can, can we answer these questions affirming our confidence in God? The first question is, what then shall we say to these things? And in, in, in the immediate context, you know, these things refer to the unbreakable chain of salvation that Paul has spoken about in verses 29 and 30. If you look up to those verses, you, you, you hear that God has set His love on us even before the world was created. He destined us for glory to be like His Son, Jesus. And then God put His plan into action. He called us to Christ. He justified us in Christ. And he says one day he will glorify us with Christ. And indeed, these things refer to all the blessings of the gospel that Paul has mentioned in chapters 5 to 8. So as we come to these verses at the end of chapter 8, they, they're really a, a summary that bring to a climatic conclusion all that Paul has said about the gospel, about the blessings of the gospel in chapters 5 to 8. If you do a quick survey of these glorious chapters, you hear that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, out of love for us. He's risen from the dead in victory over death. These chapters tell us about how in Christ we can be right with God. Our sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation. We have peace with God, no longer under God's judgment, but in a restored relationship with God. We also hear about how God's Spirit lives in us, giving us strength and power to live a new life. We, we hear about how we have a future, that we can look forward with, to the future with hope, the hope of eternal glory together with Christ. Friends, Romans 5 to 8 are are, are glorious in that they they tell us about all these amazing blessings that we have in the gospel. And at the end of of, of these chapters, Paul comes to us and says, what do we think? Friends, what what do we think of these amazing gospel blessings? 
Can we, can we read chapters 5 to 8 and still remain indifferent to these gospel blessings? Do we then read chapters 5 to 8 and go back trusting in other things apart from God, finding our confidence in other things? Or, or friends, will we find our confidence in God because we've heard what He's done for us in Christ, what He's still doing and what He will do? So Paul asks us, what shall we say to these things? What shall we say to these things? And there's only one response to this question, really. Only one right response. God says, uh, Paul says in verse 31, what shall we say? Just this one thing. If God is for us, if God is for us. You know, all these things, all these amazing blessings of the gospel, tell us just one thing. Just one thing. God is for us. God is for us. You know, if, if, if you leave this sermon remembering nothing else, just remember this one thing. In Christ, God is for us. And, says, and Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, yes, we will face opposition. We'll continue to wrestle with our own sins, we will groan as we live in a broken and fallen world, but Paul says, none of these things can harm us because we are on God's side. If God is for us, then we don't have to fear man. Our confidence doesn't have to depend on how many likes I get on social media. My, my confidence doesn't have to go up and down based on whether I think I have the approval of others or not. So for example, if you're, if you're working, you can work, you can do your job faithfully because you trust that God is for you and, and regardless of whether your boss likes you or not, you can still be faithful and serve God at work. If God is for us, then we don't have to be insecure. And in, instead of relying on other people to give us the approval we so crave, we can actually be free to love and serve them. Why? Because we already have approval from God. I don't have to use you to get approval. I can actually serve you with complete freedom because I know God approves of us in Christ. Now, how do we know that God is for us? Now, what, what assurance do we have that God is for us? Paul goes on to say, God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. So friends, our, our confidence is not based on what we've done. It is based on God giving His Son for us. You know, why did Jesus die on the cross? Yeah, we can say, yes, it was because He was betrayed and He was arrested. Yes, it's because He was wrongly accused, condemned, and executed. All those things are true. But friends, the, the ultimate reason why Jesus died on the cross is because it was the Father's plan. It was the Father's plan for His Son to die. It was, it was, Isaiah 53 tells us it was the Father's will to crush the Son. God delivered Jesus up to die the death that we should have died for our sins so that He can give us new life. You know, think, think about this. Does God love us because Jesus died for us? 
Or did Jesus die for us because God loves us? Quiz time, what do you all think? First or second option? Does God love us because Jesus died for us? Or did Jesus die for us because God loves us? It's not a trick question. <laughs> what do you guys think? First or second? Second, that's right. So, so Jesus didn't kind of curry favour with God so that God would love us. No, not at all. Jesus did not die in order to, to convince God to love us. Rather, Jesus died because God in love sent Him for our sakes. Right, that, that familiar verse, John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So option two, Jesus died for us because God loved us. And friends, if we ever struggle to, to know if God loves us, if, if, if you ever wrestle with assurance, now how do I know God loves me? No, don't, don't, don't just look at, don't look at yourself, but, but rather look to Christ. You know, that, there's no greater proof of God's love for us than the cross of Christ, friends. That, that is the basis of our confidence in Him. And, and if God has given us His Son, Paul says, you know, the next question, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Right? I, I, my, my two boys understand the logic here. You know, so they'll say, hey, hey, Dad, you know, you've already given me such a great present last year. Surely you can give me this for this year. <laughs> you know, arguing from the greater to the lesser. You know, if, 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 I give, if someone gives you a car as a present, you know, I, I think you feel pretty confident if you go to, the, go to the same person and ask to borrow a bicycle, right? So, so that's the logic of verse 22, uh, verse 32. You know, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. If God has already given us the greatest gift imaginable, His Son, then, then friends, surely we can be confident that He will supply whatever we need to bring us to glory. You know, what, what keeps us from coming to Him and asking? Right? If, if we know that He's given us His Son, friends, what, what more can He give? John Stott says these helpful words, that the cross is the guarantee of the continuing, unfailing generosity of God. Friends, that, that's our hope. That's our confidence. Do we think God is for us because of what we've done? Do we think God is for us because of what we're doing now? No, if, if, we, if we think that way, then, then friends, we're just trusting in ourselves. And we may feel confident when we're doing well, but what if we're not? What, what, what about times when we don't do well? You know, we will suffer and struggle with disappointments and frustrations. We will struggle with pain and sorrow. And in those times, we may be tempted to doubt God's goodness. You know, some of us may feel far from God now. And in the storms of life, Need a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls, something that holds us fast in the storms of life. And this passage reminds us if, if we want true confidence, we won't find it in ourselves. But if we want true confidence, we need to look to Christ, look to Jesus. He is enough. 
No, God says to us, I did not spare my son. Therefore, my promise to you cannot fail. I will help you. I will. Now, God says to each one of us, if we have Christ, we can trust God completely. We can lay aside the other things that we often scramble to put our trust in, to put our confidence in. What, 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 what is it? Is it your career? Is it your bank balance? Is it your family? You know, good as those things are. But friends, God, God encourages us to, to lay those false confidences aside and cling on to the true confidence that will never let us down. And we know it will never let us down because God is for us. He's given us His Son. And, and God says to each one of us this morning, be confident in me. Be confident in me. Next point, we can be confident that we are right with God. Now, I know some of us don't struggle with doubting God, but, but some of us do struggle with doubting ourselves. Right? You, 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 may, you may read this passage so far and think, yes, yeah, I agree with you, God is for us, great. But, but you may be asking, how can God be for someone like me? You know, I'm sinful. I've fallen so many times. In, in fact, I, I'm still stumbling now. You know, my, my life is a mess now. How can God be for someone like me? My heart is not warm towards God. My heart is lukewarm, at best, cold for most of the time. You know, will, will God have someone like me? Will God be for someone like me? Now, friends, we, we face many accusers in life. You know, our own consciences accuse us as we recall the painful memories of past sins, present sins. You know, other people accuse us because we don't live up to their expectations or standards. The devil accuses us, right? That's what Satan means, right? Satan means accuser. That's his job description. That, that's who he is. He accuses the people of God. What shall we say? What shall we say to all these accusations? I think the only, the only true thing to say is guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I'm a great sinner, but thank God that Jesus came not to save the righteous, but Jesus came to save sinners. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, we are God's elect. He has chosen us in Christ, and in Him, we have been brought back to God in a right relationship with Him. Friends, God justifies. Do we, do we really believe that? That He is the one who makes us right. Now, if we really believe that it is God who justifies, it will also show in how we treat one another. You know, think about this. Are we judgmental and critical towards one another and others? Do, do we pass judgment quickly on others because they don't meet our standards? Now, friends, if, if we do that, then I fear that we've forgotten that it is God who justifies, not us, not us. 
If God is the one who justifies, then how can we be judgmental of others? How can we be critical of others? In fact, Paul picks up this idea in Romans 14. Romans 14 verse 4, he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, referring to God, that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. Why? Because the Lord is able to make him stand. It is God who justifies. You know, in a while, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper and we'll spend time remembering the death of Christ. My friends, the, the Lord's Supper, it's, it's not a funeral. The Lord's Supper is not a funeral. The Lord's Supper is a celebration. It, it, it is a feast for our hearts to be reminded that this Saviour who died is also the Saviour who has risen from the dead. So as we come together, it, it, it's, it's a reverential meal, but it's not the mourning of a lost one. It's a celebration that we have a Saviour who lives. And this Saviour fills our hearts with joy and confidence. Now what we have is more than a memory of a Saviour who died for us. What we have is a living Christ. So who is to condemn? Verse 34, Paul tells us Christ Jesus is the one who died. And then he says, more than that, right? More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, there is no condemnation for all who are in Christ. Why? Because Jesus is still at work for the good of his people. And sometimes we wonder, you know, what did Jesus do after the death and resurrection? Is he kind of just idle, you know? Paul tells us he's, he's still at work. He is at God's right hand pleading the cause of his people, pleading for us, those of us whom he has shed his blood for. Jesus intercedes for us, present tense. Now, before the throne of God, we have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, Whoever lives and pleads for me, friends, that, that, that's, that's our confidence. You know, one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament is from the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah 3 has a very graphic picture of what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. So you want a, you want a mental image of that? Zechariah 3 gives us this mental image that shows us what that's like. Right, Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's, that's what Satan does. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. It's not this, referring to Joshua, the high priest, it's not this a brand plucked from the fire. That, that's us, friends. We are brands plucked from the fire fire of God's judgment. You know, it's not this, a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Again, friends, that's us. The, the filthy rags of our, righteousness, of our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness are filthy garments in the sight of God. And Satan calls us out for that, rightly. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. 
And, and to Joshua, the high priest, the angel says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Friends, that's Romans 8, right there in Zechariah 3. Who is to condemn? Jesus comes before God and pleads the merit of his blood. That sinner has been washed clean. I've given him clean vestments. Who is to condemn? Friends, Christ has taken away the filthy rags of our unrighteousness and our self-righteousness. And Jesus has covered us with the beautiful garment of His righteousness. We can be confident that we are right with God. So friends, draw near to God now. Draw near to Him because we can be sure that we are right with Him. Finally, third point, we can be confident of God's love for us. If we are in Christ, we don't need to fear condemnation or judgment. Neither do we need to fear suffering. And when we go through tough times, we may question if God loves us. In tough times, as we struggle with pain and sorrow, I think sometimes the question we ask is, is God there? Does He know? Does He care? You know, God can seem distant in those times. We may, we may wonder, are we suffering because God's love for us, Christ's love for us has somehow failed? That's why we're suffering. So Paul poses this question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You know, this tells us that Christians are not exempt from suffering. Friends, we, we will not be exempt from suffering. As, as we've already seen in verse 17, we can expect to face hardship. If not now, then in time to come. And, and friends, we need to realize that we suffer not because we've sinned. You know, sometimes we have this almost like calmer understanding of suffering. You know, I, I do something wrong, so God punishes me. You know, I, I, that's why I'm suffering. You know, yes, we, we know that there, sometimes there is chastisement for sin, but, but friends, that's not what Paul is thinking about here in Romans 8. You know, he's, he's not thinking about suffering that's the result of sin. You know, and, and how do we know that? It's because he quotes from Psalm 44. Right? Psalm 44, which we have that quotation here in verse 36. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. Friends, Psalm 44 speaks of the righteous, not unrighteous, but the righteous who suffer. Now the, if, if you read the context of the psalm, the psalmist says this in verses 17, 18. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. Though we have not forgotten you, they are righteous. And we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, friends. Psalm 44 speaks of the righteous who suffer. And Paul wants us to know that suffering for the sake of Christ is a part of normal Christianity. Suffering for Jesus' sake is the normal. 
but the normal Christian life. This picture is a picture of San Sebastian Church in Sri Lanka. As many of you, many of us know, in Easter this year, there there was horrific horrific bombings of several churches in Sri Lanka. This is the remains of San Sebastian Church in Sri Lanka. And, and after the bombing, one of the pastors, the pastor, you know, this, this man, this pastor named Jurines Shedrak, the pastor of St. John the Baptist Church in Sri Lanka, you know, he, he wrote these very insightful words, which, will, which we will do well to also take to heart as we think about suffering for Jesus' sake. What, 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 what did Jurines Shedrak write? He says, If history has shown us anything, It is that those who truly follow God will always be persecuted. The Christian faith is built on the call to deny self, take up our cross, and follow Christ. When we choose to become Christians, we we sign our life over. We need to realize that we're signing our life over to Christ. It's a call to, as as a Bonhoeffer said it so well, it's a call to die to ourselves. The cross is an instrument of death, and we're called to deny ourselves, carry the cross daily as our sign. So the bombings in Sri Lanka are terrible, they're tragic, they're horrific, but Paul tells us they are not unexpected. Friends, they are not unexpected. This is what it means in Psalm 44. We are given over to death. We, like sheep, to be slaughtered. Friends, this is what it means to be a normal Christian. And, 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 the, and the more we realize this, the, the, the more strengthened our hearts will be in times of suffering. We won't be caught unawares by suffering. We'll see this as part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. The Christian life is full of joy, but it is also difficult. Christian service and ministry happen in the midst of weakness, sorrow, challenges, and opposition. Now, I want to take a few moments to speak to Sam and Jess in particular. You, know, you guys are going off soon, and Sam, you're about to step into seminary studies to, to study, prepare yourself for the ministry. And I think Romans 8 is a very helpful passage to kind of fortify your hearts as you step into what could be the unknown because you don't know where God is leading you in the months and years to come. I just want to leave you with uh, 2 Timothy 4 verse 5. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And trust that God is for you, friend. God is for you. You know, living in a country like Singapore, we can enjoy much prosperity. You know, we're about to celebrate National Day, and it's a reminder of how far we've come, right? You know, my, my kids keep singing our Singapore to me. <laughs> you know, they love that song, right? And, and indeed, there's much that we can be thankful for, right? Prosperity, comfort, success, etc., etc. But there is a cost. Because living in a prosperous country like Singapore can, can cause us to fall into the trap of also wanting that same kind of comfort and prosperity in our Christian life. We can fall into the trap of making the Christian life all about my own comfort, my own convenience. 
And friends, it, it is a sign of serious spiritual decline. If we've lost the concept of suffering for the sake of Christ, it, it's a sign of spiritual decline when Christians are fighting over parking spots at church, fighting over things that, that guarantee their convenience. Friends, it, it is a sign of spirit, serious spiritual decline if we've lost the sense of suffering for the sake of Christ in order to advance the gospel of Christ. Because God doesn't promise us trouble-free lives. And we know God's love not when pain is absent, but we know God's love when He is present with us in the midst of our pain. If Jesus showed His love for us by suffering, and if He calls us to share in His suffering, then it cannot be that our suffering should separate us from His love. How then should we respond when we suffer? Paul tells us, right? Know that we conquer not in spite of suffering. You know, we conquer not by avoiding suffering. Paul says we conquer in. The preposition is so helpful. We conquer in suffering. So friends, we, we, don't, we don't merely have to put up with suffering. We, we don't merely tolerate suffering like Stoics, enduring hardship without complaining or showing any feeling. No, no, friends, Paul's not calling us to be Stoics in suffering. He's asking us for more than that. You know, Paul is calling us to, to, as we suffer, to look forward with confidence, to look forward with expectant, joy-filled hope that we shall triumph. Friends, we're not Stoics, but we're called to be confident in God and to know that in Him, in Christ, in suffering, we shall be more than conquerors. Friends, be confident in Christ. Not only will we conquer, we will more than conquer. We will, the, the word there is literally super conquer. We will super conquer. We can be confident of complete victory over our trials. You know, how, how can we be confident of these things? It is through the love of Christ. And because of His love, we can be sure that He is working all things together for our good. And we won't always understand why we suffer, but we can be certain that God's love will never let us go. You know, Paul says in verse 38, right, I am sure, I am sure. What about us? Can we say that with Paul? I am sure. Are we sure? Are we persuaded that we are secure in Christ? Friends, I pray that God would fill our hearts with the truth of the gospel more and more so that when it comes to times of suffering, we can fall back on this confidence that we have in Jesus Christ. Nothing, Paul says, nothing, nothing, not anything at all can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. Not your illness, not your joblessness, not your singleness, not your marital difficulties, not your cancer, 
not your chronic pain, not the loss of a loved one, nothing. Nothing can separate us from God's love for us in Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Now, God's love does not spare us from calamities in this life, but His love will bring us safely home to everlasting joy. Now, we often cry out in tough times, God, please change my circumstances. But God comes to us and He says to us, I have bigger plans for you than just to change your circumstances. I'm not going to change your circumstances, but I'm going to change you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to help you to respond with confidence, with trust, with hope. And I'm going to change you in the midst of your suffering to become more and more like my son. Friends, that's God's plan for us. And this is how we are more than conquerors through God who loved us. We're more than conquerors because God is walking with us in suffering and leading us to glory. Our pain will not be in vain. Horatio Spafford was a Christian businessman who lived in the 1800s. In 1871, his real estate investments literally went up in smoke in the great fire that destroyed much of Chicago. Spafford lost practically everything overnight in the fire. Picking up the pieces of his financial ruin, Spafford thought it would be a good idea for his family to take a vacation in Europe just to change of scene, get their minds off the loss that they've just suffered, spend some time away. But because of some last-minute work, uh, he couldn't leave with his wife and four daughters, so he sent them ahead on on a ship. They they didn't fly then, so they took took a ship. The ship that his wife and four daughters were travelling on collided with another ship, and the ship sank in about 12 minutes. Mrs. Spafford was rescued, thankfully, And she sent word to her husband after the accident, saved, alone. Mrs. Spafford was safe, but all four daughters had perished. You know, this is like a Job story, right? Where his business failed, and then his children are taken away from him. Spafford left for Europe at once after receiving the message from his wife. And, And Spafford's ship approached the same area where his wife's ship had sunk. And as his, as, his, as his ship approached the place where his daughters had lost their lives, Spafford sat down in his cabin on the ship and he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows Like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well 
It is well with my soul. Friends, if God is for us, it will be well with our soul. So friends, whatever we may be going through now, good times, bad times, we can be confident in God. Friends, do we know the love of God for us in Christ Jesus? Friends, can we say it is well, it is well with our soul? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we come to you and our hearts are burdened. Father, you know our hearts. You know what we struggle with, each and every one of us. You know the pains that we bear. You know the sorrows that we contend with. And Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you are Abba, Father, the one who has adopted us by your grace and love, the one who has made us your own. And Father, because of this confidence that we have, we can come to you, we can bear our hearts before you and seek your grace. Father, we thank you for the glorious promise in these verses that you are for us and nothing can take us away from you. So Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with confidence that only you can give. Father, fill our hearts with a greater vision of your greatness. Fill our hearts with a, a deep sense of joy in you, that we would trust you, that we would turn away the other things that we try to find confidence in, that we turn away from false hopes, that we would put our hope in you alone. Oh, Father, we pray that you would work in our hearts. Draw us to yourself. Help us to find true rest in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.